the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that around 100,000 crashes occur each year caused primarily uh, to drowsy driving and falling asleep at the wheel. I suspect that nearly every one of us has been guilty of, of something close to that, driving late at night after the end of a tiring day and uh, starting to doze off. Most, the most memorable time that happened uh, in Aaron and my life, we were, um, we were up in Indianapolis, and uh, we, we were there for a funeral. We ended up leaving Indianapolis about 6 o'clock, and we're driving all the way down to Jackson, Mississippi, which is you know, a pretty long drive. We, we drove through the night, got back in at 3 or 4, and it was the job of the, you know, the passenger seat to keep the, the driver awake, and yet the driver was also trying to keep the, the passenger awake. And, um, you know, it is, it's hard because what, what happens, there comes a point when your whole body is sending signals to your brain um, and to your will whispering louder and louder uh, that, that it, it's okay to shut your eyes for a moment, just half a second. Uh, str- straight road ahead of you. You just shut your eyes for just a second. And and no matter how many times you stop and no matter how much coffee you drink, no matter how many um, instances you try to shake the cobwebs out of your head, the the whole body is is appealing to you for for just a second or two. It's all right. It'll be all right. None of us get into a car with the aim of falling asleep halfway to our destination. But the effects of tiredness and the the seductive whispers, uh, deceitful whispers, are are almost overpowering in that moment. And it's then that we have to recognize the the danger that we are in. And uh, I think that aptly describes where we are today in Hebrews chapter 3, these people are, are in danger of, of, of spiritual crash, frankly, of, of complete disaster. We read 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than uh, the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says, and here's the quotation from Psalm uh, 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your, your father's ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I had did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, 
They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you would be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. And as has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they... Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not, for those, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. You know, the book of Hebrews is, is very difficult to understand We've been saying that it was written 2,000 years ago to a Jewish Christian audience, an audience that was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, that knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And that simply isn't the case with us. We don't know the Old Testament all that well. It was to a people who experience very different temptations that we experience. I, I would assume that nobody in the room this morning is uh, on the verge of reconverting back to Judaism. You know, that's not something we're struggling with. And we're not wrestling with the question whether or not Jesus is, is greater than Moses or, or less than Moses as they were. Um, it's very interesting when you go back and look at the, the, the writings, the Jewish writings in, in this period, which is called the Second Temple Period, uh, how monumental a figure Moses was in their estimation. I mean, Moses, they talked about Moses as though he was equal with God and that he was, some people thought that Moses would kind of be reincarnated and, or resurrected and come back to the world as the world's Messiah. Um, so, th- I mean, for us, we're not wrestling with whether or not Jesus is greater than the angels or greater than Moses, but that was a very real consideration for them. And then obviously we're not, we're not being threatened with imprisonment or torture or economic loss or sanctions or all the th- types of things uh, that they were facing if they remained as Christians. But the dim- dissimilarities notwithstanding, their struggles are very much like ours. Maybe you picked up on that as I was reading. I mean... Are we not plagued by the deceitfulness of sin or by uh, the hardness of heart? Do we not struggle with unbelief and not listening to God, uh, putting God to the test? Uh, yeah, we, in all of these ways, we're, we're very much like them. And so the author, author's message is the sober warning to, to be careful, you know, wake up. Consider very carefully the dangerous place you may be in. Um, you know, notice that there's this, this voice that's whispering in your ear. Uh, and it might be the, the, the voice of spiritual fatigue. I mean, some of us may be here today and we just feel tapped out spiritually. Um, it, it may be the voice of suffering. But be, be very careful that, uh, that you don't make the same mistake that, that Israel did and uh, the very same mistake that these, these early Jewish Christians were, 
uh, on the brink of making, consider very carefully, he says, this long quotation from Psalm 95. So that's where we're going to begin to start out here. Uh, This quotation and commentary from Psalm 95. And it will carry... Uh, through the the remainder of chapter 4. He's going to take the psalm and interpret it and and go different directions with it. So uh, Psalm 95 is interested in in the time when the children of Israel were were between out of Egypt and into the promised land. Where, Where were they in that time between the times? They were in, you know, the, the wilderness. Now, when I say wilderness... Maybe some of us think of uh, the Frank Church wilderness, the, the vast forests of northern uh, and central Idaho. No, this wilderness was not a, a forested, timbered, uh, lush, fertile wilderness. This wilderness was a desert so arid, so arid that virtually nothing could grow there. Maybe a few shrubs and, and Maybe a little bit of spring grass to care, care for your livestock. But, um, but no, you, you, you needed to bring your own food and water as you moved through the wilderness and try to go through as quickly as you could because you couldn't support life long term. You couldn't, it's not going to take care of your livestock. There's, it won't support agriculture. You know, the wilderness is, is used oftentimes in the Bible as a metaphor for, for, for the sufferings and the, the trials of this life. So it's very instructive if you're here this morning and and you're in the wilderness. Well, I want you to hear what happens in Exodus chapter twenty or seventeen. Exodus seventeen, where we read, we read this: When the whole Israelite community camped at Rephidim, which was a location there, there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and they said, "Give us water to drink." And Moses said, why do you put the Lord to the test? But they were thirsty for water. They grumbled and they said, why did the Lord bring us out of Egypt to make us die here of our thirst? And they called the place Masa, which means quarreling. And in the Hebrew, it kind of has the connotations of a physical confrontation. Quarreling, and they called it Meribah. Testing, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, is God really among us or not? As one writer asks, why, at this point in the story of the book of Exodus, shouldn't they have known better? I mean, come on. You've been brought out of Egypt. Shouldn't they have known by now that God would take care of them? I mean, somebody you would expect would speak up and say, hey, look, guys, we've been thirsty before. Uh, we're thirsty right now, but, but God will provide. You know, last time we were thirsty, what happened? Moses threw a stick into the water, and it turned into delicious, sweet water. Last time we were hungry, what happened? Heaven started raining quail and donuts in the, in the form of manna. You know, we have seen this show before, haven't we? It's going to be okay. Uh, and not only is it going to be okay, it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to see how God is going to satisfy our thirst this time. What is it going to be? Is it going to be sweet tea? Is it going to be Diet Coke? <laughs> is it going to be you know, whole milk or eggnog? I mean, it's going to be amazing. Let's just let's watch and wait and see. 
But instead, no, they quarrel and they put God to the test. They put God to the test. Some of you students, you, you, you have your midterms coming up over the next couple of weeks, and you are, or you are dreading the test. Uh, you're, you're dreading the enormous paper that you are writing right now, and you may be dreading your math test this week or your, your science test. Um, why do teachers put us to the test? You know, what's the point of, of a test? Is a test simply sadistic human cruelty? No, you, you give them a test because to, 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 you want them to prove something to you, don't you? A teacher is interested in finding out, uh, you want to you prove that you have learned the material. You prove to me that you put the time in, that you have studied Prove that you are an A student and not a C student. Um, prove that you have learned. Prove it. Prove it. And when you put things in those, those terms, hopefully the wheels are turn, turning in your brains and you realize what a serious sin it is when, when we, when tiny little, as one guy puts it, tiny little imperfect ignorant human beings, when we tell the, the God of the universe to take our test. And we do it all the time when we are going through the wilderness of suffering, uh, when it feels like God is, is not around, when it feels like God is not meeting my needs. We say, hey there, God, go take this, and when you're done, bring it back to my desk at the back of the classroom. I will grade it, and I will tell you how you did. I mean, who are we to, to say to the, to, the, to the God who created all things and who saved us and who's, who, who himself is going to come back to judge the living and the dead? <laughs> all right, prove it. You know, when we put in those terms, hopefully we, we see just how ridiculous it is for teeny weeny you and me. And I, by, by saying that, I don't want you to misunderstand me to think that we're not allowed to lament our sorrows and, and offer genuine questions. We'll do that. I mean, Lent, uh, Lent starts this, well, technically this Wednesday, but I mean, we'll go through the next five Sundays of Lent and we will, it, our focus will be on lamentation and questions and, and why questions. Um, it's, it's okay to say, I don't understand. But remember, remember the way that C.S. Lewis put it? He said, he said this, he said, we have, we have placed God in the dock. There's a famous collection of essays from C.S. Lewis with that title. Uh, we think that, that a dock is out on a lake, but, but a dock is, is illegal in a legal sense is where the prisoner is placed during the trial. We have put God in the dock. Kevin DeYoung uh, explains, he goes on, Quote, the title that Lewis gave is very appropriate because he argues that this is really the essence of human rebellion. You want to know what human rebellion is? It's we put God in the dock and we expect that he has to defend himself. Instead of us coming to God and asking for forgiveness and mercy and saying, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. We go to God with, we go to him with demands and we sit on the throne of judgment over him. We say, <clears throat> does the prisoner have anything to say for himself? What explanation do you give for your behavior? How do you explain disease, 
tsunamis, wars, refugees, terrorists? What, what's your justification for my unemployment, my loneliness, my car breaking down, my unfair grades, my lack of fulfillment? And we place God in the dock. We try to force his hand and make him jump through our hoops and expect that he, that he should be accountable and answerable to us. This was the sin of Israel in the wilderness. This is the sin that Psalm 95 is warning against. And, and apparently this is what the author of Hebrews was, was afraid that these early Jewish Christians might, might do the same. I would go so far as to say the number one reason that I have witnessed as a pastor, number one reason why people leave the faith, I mean, it's almost always, it almost always has to do with pain and suffering, right? You know, you leave the, you leave the faith because of pain. The reason they leave the faith is because, is because they, they, they give God the test and God didn't pass the test when in fact they were the ones actually being tested <laughs> and they didn't pass the test. I mean, the essence of, at the heart of being a Christian, isn't it to to humble ourselves in the moment of of pain and suffering? And and to say, you know, um, God doesn't have to answer my tests. The only thing that I am concerned about is that I might pass your test, (laughs) that I would pass, not that you would pass. They get it all backwards. They leave the faith because they think, that he's got to pass. No, I oh that the spirit of Christ in me would give me strength that I wouldn't turn back that I, that I would you know persevere and see Christ and not bring shame to his name. So that's the first point. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as they did. The second thing he wants us to be on guard about. He wants us to be Weary of hardening our hearts. Now do not, you saw that in the reading. Do not, do not harden your hearts. Pay attention. Do not harden your hearts. Um, what is a hard heart? Honestly, a hard heart is the opposite of a, of a pure heart. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Um, a pure heart. And, and a pure heart is the opposite of a cynical heart. The heart that just becomes cynical about you know, other people or about all of life. Or, or maybe you become cynical about, about even yourself. And a cynical heart is normally an emotionless heart. Or another way to put it, it's a flat heart. Um, it's a heart that... That is, nothing gets into it. So you don't find yourself celebrating very much of, uh, much at all, or you don't find yourself uh, weeping about much, much of all. Neither sadness nor joy enter into the flat heart. The heart is impermeable. Uh, you know, the hard heart is the, is the heart that doesn't, honestly, just doesn't pay attention. It, it doesn't care to hear what God says, you know, either through his word or through a sermon or through a brother and sister in Christ. It just, it zones out. It doesn't care. And then, and then finally, I noticed that 
a sure sign that my heart is in a bad place is when I, I repeatedly or frequently hear myself saying, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Whatever. You know, you sh- the shrug of the shoulders. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care, and I'm emotionless. And, and that, the hard heart, becomes the new normal. And the reason why we call it the heart is not because it's this beating organ inside of us, but it's the control center of our whole lives. And, and then it becomes a new normal. The story is told <clears throat> of a kid who got in a fight at church camp. And his dad came to pick him up. When he got there, the kid had already packed his bags. He was out of the cabin. He threw his bag into the back of the car and was just angry, um, wanted to drive away. And the father says, let's take a little walk first. Let's go for a walk. So, so they walk back to a quiet place. And um, they sit down. And his dad says, says son... Son, do you have a voice, a voice inside of you telling you anything right now? The boy says, yeah, yeah. Dad, dad asks, so what's that, voice, what's that voice telling you? I guess it's telling me I ought to humble myself and I ought to face the music and, and not run away and I ought to go back and make things right. The dad said, whose voice, whose voice do you think that is? And the kid said, Uh, I think it's God's. Listen, Dad, it may be God's, but I'm not interested in uh, in following what he says. And do you know what the dad said at that moment? He said, son, I can't make you listen to God, but I want to tell you this, that if you don't listen to God, uh, something Every time you don't listen to him, something becomes a little harder inside of you. And the next time that voice speaks, it's a little dimmer. And the next time it speaks after that, it's, it's dimmer still. And, and you get harder and until you no longer hear that voice at all. That, that's kind of the catch-22, is the person who hardens their heart, um, it, they can't even hear the fact that they got a hard heart because they're not listening anymore. You know? Who is the character in the Bible who, who most famously hardened his heart? Pharaoh? <laughs> Isn't it ironic that here it is, I've brought you out of Egypt, I've, I've rescued you from Pharaoh, and yet you're turning out to be a whole lot like Pharaoh? Isn't that part of the, the twistedness of the wilderness? Is in the wilderness you become a little more like the one that I had rescued you from. You're in the same danger that Pharaoh was. Do not harden your heart. Look at verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> verses 12 and 13 are, are remarkably instructive. I want you to look there with me. I'm so grateful that this passage doesn't end on, on that note. Uh, it goes on to say there is a way. There really is a way for us to keep you know, tender and listening Remarkably instructive. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, the word there for encourage one another is the word um, parakaleo, and it simply means to come alongside of and to uh, speak to or to call to, kaleo. 
to come alongside of and to call to. Sometimes the translations, maybe if you have your Bible in front of you, some translations will, will translate it as counsel, come alongside and, and counsel, kind of peer counseling. And then some of the older translations will, 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 uh, will, give, will, will render it exhort, exhort one another, come alongside, and I don't know, there's a sense of forcefulness to me of that word, exhort one another. What are we supposed to exhort one another to do? Three things. Number one, exhort one another about the deceitfulness of sin, which we had the great Martin Luther quote earlier in the service today of the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of me trusting in my own righteousness, but It's not a surprise, is it, to hear that sin is deceitful? (laughs) Paul's point in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says that Eve ate the the forbidden fruit because she was deceived. Never would have done it if she had any idea, any idea whatsoever of, of of what that would mean. But she was deceived. The Satan took that fruit, he held it up in front of her, and it says that the fruit was delightful to look at. It was delightful to the eyes. And it, it, it looked, she just imagined how delicious, how delicious it would be. And all the while, the Satan is there whispering in her ear, in her ear about how unfair God's commands are. And how non-applicable they are in this situation. And how, uh, how burdensome, how... how dated and ancient and irrelevant, not modern, are those commands. And the longer she looks and the longer she listens, the drowsier and drowsier she becomes and the more preposterous God's commands seem to her. The Satan deceives her. You know, the Satan, Jesus said, the Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy and to deceive. And what you and I want, what you and I need more than, we need a friend who will, we need a friend who will come alongside of us and do for us what Adam never did for his wife. You realize that he was in the garden the whole time? The whole time. Garden couldn't have been that big, right? <laughs> he was there the whole time, and he never came alongside of her. Will that, will that be said of us when some, some of our, our Christian brothers decide to to just go off the rails? Will it be said of us that we never came alongside of them and exhorted them to faithfulness to God and faithfulness to Jesus Christ? Honey, he never said, honey, you're not seeing this situation rightly. Your spiritual perception is is all off. He never comes and encourages her. That's what we need in a friend, first of all. Secondly, it says, encourage each other day after day and Here's what I need. I need a friend to come alongside me. This is the theme that we've had throughout uh, Hebrews so far. I need a friend to come alongside and help me see Jesus. That maybe sounds a little cliche, but honestly, that is the, if you act, do you have a friend who comes alongside you and whatever it is you're going through, they purposely, intentionally help you focus your eyes on the apostle and high priests of our faith, and say, look at Jesus. When you're going through the wilderness of, of trial and suffering, look at Jesus, because he too went through the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days was, 
was what? It was symbolic of a very long period of time. We don't counsel each other some type of generic religion of, well, trust God because he's up there and, and you should just trust him and submit to him because he's God. No, we counsel each other a very Christocentric, Christ-centered type of counsel that says, look at Jesus. He went the, through the wilderness for you. He endured the, will, the, the temptations and the barrenness He probably felt at times like God was nowhere around and I've been abandoned out here. And he did did all of that for you. So you trust, you don't trust in the generic God above. You trust in the God who's gone through the wilderness for you. That's what we need to say to each other. Then finally, thirdly, how do we keep tender and, and not hardened? Finally, we need friends who will insist on action. I draw this from the end of verse 13. Look there. Um, Insist on action. Encourage one another day after day, he says, as long as it is called today. Do you know what the devil's favorite word is? It's tomorrow. When it comes to spiritual things, it's always tomorrow. And tomorrow rarely ever comes. We, I don't know, when you're 20, you, you think that you'll live with no regrets and you'll, you'll accomplish all the thing. And then you get, I don't know, you get to your 40s and 50s and you start to realize there, there's a mountain of things that I said I was going to do and I've never done. And you get to the end of your life and there's this whole, this whole mountain of things I intended to do but never did. I'll deal with my I'll deal with my bitterness tomorrow. I'll deal with my lust tomorrow. I'll confront my lack of forgiveness tomorrow. I'll manage my discontent, my anger, my negativity, my pornography. It's all tomorrow. I love this guy's a good preacher, this the author of Hebrews, because he says no, 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 it's all about today. The only thing that we know that we have is, is right now, right now, today. Um, and and uh, friends, it, it, if you could just, if you hear God's voice speaking to you right now in this sermon, you know, right now, on this Sunday, in this room, in this sermon, calling to you to, calling you to holiness, calling you away from a life of sin, do not harden your heart and say tomorrow. Jesus Christ has come. He's come to set us free today. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as the apostle and high priest, and take action today. Um, unbelief, the, the deceitfulness of sin and unbelief is, is always saying, uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, it, it's always a delaying tactic. It's, it feels like the, the U.S. court system. I mean, as, as my sister is just been stuck in divorce court for two years, almost three years now. Can't even get, it, get a case to be done because there's always delay after delay after delay after, after delay. And unbelief is delay and evade, evade after evade. It's amazing to me you, how you can you know, call somebody gently but lovingly call somebody sin and the, their problem will always be that you didn't say it to me the right way. <laughs> or... It's evade, it's evade. Now, brothers and sisters, faith is decisive. 
Faith in Jesus Christ is not drowsy. Faith is decisive. It is definite. It is waking. It's clear. It's, it's robust. It's wholehearted. It's today. 